This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. My Angelo um, has said many profound things in life, but she has a special ode to life itself, where she says life is not measured by the number of breaths you take, but it's measured by the number of moments that take your breath away. It's beautiful, it's poetic, but I think what it doesn't do is it takes for granted the fact that we don't really reflect on the fact that with every second we are taking a breath. It's so natural for us to do it. Uh, And it's only when um, your heart has fibrillations and you miss a beat, do you realize that you're struggling to breathe? And many people really struggled with that in the COVID uh, pandemic years. And even though breathing is meant to be subconscious, you know, we aren't doing it right now without wondering how our bodies are manufacturing that oxygen. However, they are babies, little fragile infants who struggle to breathe. Um, Especially at that, you know, early stage in their life because their vital organs haven't developed sufficiently enough capacity. And in this discussion, we're talking about respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. According to Wits University, this is the most common cause of hospitalization, did you know? And sometimes, unfortunately, even death for children under the age of five. It shows up more severely in infants who are younger than six months old. And obviously, your little baby is not in a position to say to you, I'm struggling to breathe. And so we need to find ways in which we can help the little ones medically, but also identify the symptoms. And so today we're speaking to Professor Shabir Mardi, Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Professor of Vaccinology at WITS. Uh, Professor Mardi, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming through. Like I'm saying, you know, breathing is so natural, so subconscious, we're not even thinking about it. And yet it is just not that easy. It, do, it doesn't just happen for everyone. Why not? Uh, absolutely. And obviously, if we aren't able to breathe and if we aren't able to get oxygen into our bloodstream, mm. we would cease to survive. Uh, so breathing is fundamental to life. And Lerat, as you pointed out, uh, this happens uh, in a very subconscious way. Most of us don't really appreciate it's important until we end up with a situation where there isn't enough oxygen Mm. that can enter into our bloodstream or what we refer to as a carbon dioxide, it's unable to be removed from the body. Mm. And that is what the lungs are all about. It's really to ensure that we're getting oxygen into the body, carbon dioxide out, and that allows our bodies to continue functioning and for all of the sort of cellular functions to take place. Now, the challenge, unfortunately, sometimes that we face is that we're always exposed to a number of different bacteria as well as viruses. Mm. And in a small percentage of individuals that are exposed to those bacteria or viruses, it might end up in the lung. Uh, that might elicit an immune response, an inflammatory response, and that brings about what we refer to as consolidation in the lung. And that consolidation in the lung unfortunately interferes with the ability of oxygen to enter into the bloodstream Mm. and for us to be able to remove uh, carbon dioxide, which can be extremely uh, poisonous in a sense uh, Mm. if the concentration raises too high in the blood. And that is what we're really trying to prevent 
rather than get to the point of treating. Right. It's the best is to prevent it from taking place. Okay, so just a quick biology lesson for all of us, including myself, Professor. So you breathe through your lips or through your through your mouth or through your nose, and you're breathing in oxygen. And then what happens? It goes into the lungs, filtrating it into the heart, and then it passes into the bloodstream. And then correct. you exhale carbon dioxide. That's correct. So the way we breathe uh, subconsciously is, is mainly from the diaphragm. It's the relaxation and a contraction of the diaphragm, that sort of a muscle just below the lungs. Mm. And that relaxation and contraction is what allows us to inhale and to exhale. When we inhale, we're drawing air into the lungs, and that air is obviously enriched in oxygen. And that oxygen uh, then uh, sort of diffuses from what we refer to as the alveolar. These are very small sacs. At a terminal part of the lung, it diffuses across uh, this uh, sort of thin uh, membrane Mm. into the bloodstream. But at the same time, while that's taking place, the blood that's coming to the lungs has got a higher carbon dioxide concentration than what is in the atmosphere or in the air. Mm. And that carbon dioxide then diffuses in the opposite direction to get some sort of homeostasis balance between what is in the blood and what is Mm. in the terminal air sacs. Uh, so that is the way we breathe in and out. Okay. It's, but it's really the function of the diaphragm that allows air to move in and to move out. So when you're exercising, as an example, and you're short of breath, you find that you label with your breathing. And that's the reason you're trying to assist your diaphragm mm. by recruiting other muscles in the chest to help you okay. to get more air in or to force air out. And it's very important to get this carbon dioxide out of your system. Uh, absolutely. So CO2 is bad news for the body. Oxygen is good news, but we're fortunate in that we've got plants in our environment. Because if all of the CO2 that was released wasn't absorbed by something else, we would be in serious trouble as well. Because mm. we can't have too much carbon dioxide in the environment. Mm. So the plants absorb that CO2 and mm. then uses it for its own purposes okay. as well. So, so whilst this is a medical conversation, it's also a little bit of a green the environment uh, conversation. The more trees we plant, the more we've got places that can absorb the CO2. Correct. And okay. those plants are important. They release oxygen for us as well. Okay, so plant trees, ladies and gentlemen. We need to do more of that. So then what is this respiratory, how do you, syncytial virus? Yeah. So as the short, we usually refer to it as RSV, but it's referred to as respiratory syncytial virus. Respiratory because it uh, is a respiratory pathogen. It's airborne transmission, or you can get self-inoculate yourself with it. Uh, the reason for the syncytial is that once this virus gets into the lung, mm. it causes adjacent cells to start fusing to each other and causes damage to the cell. So it forms like a syncytium, and that's what you would see in a diseased lung under a microscope. You would see the cells which have now sort of fused together, yeah. and obviously the virus. So it's respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, it's a virus that was discovered in the late 1950s, around about 1956. Yeah. And in fact, the first attempt at trying to produce a vaccine against this virus was in the early 1960s, which unfortunately failed. So there was quite a hiatus between then and now uh, that we've had the first vaccine that's been shown uh, to be effective, to be safe in the mothers, and to actually confer protection to the young babies in the first few months of life mm. when the babies are most susceptible to developing, developing severe illness from the virus RSV. Why are the babies so uh, susceptible? And are they susceptible whilst they are in the mother's womb or after birth? 
No, it's after birth. So the virus doesn't really usually affect the babies that are in the mother's womb. And we'll come to why we're vaccinating mothers rather than the babies to protect the baby. But the reason why these young babies are susceptible, so everyone uh, in the country is exposed to this virus uh, during the RSV season, which in South Africa is typically between March until around about June. And even adults become infected with this virus. But because adults have been previously infected and have built up immunity against the virus, they don't generally become very ill. In the case of young children, especially children in the first year of life, that would be the first exposure to the virus. And because it's the first exposure to the virus, they haven't developed immunity against the virus, in addition to which their lung volume, lung capacity is less than what it is in adults. So even though adults might be able to endure some insults to the lung in very young children, because they got a lower lung capacity, uh, if it is inflicted with some sort of an insult, uh, where you do have some disease of part of the lung, they're more likely to tip over uh, and uh, have the ability to exchange these gases, oxygen and carbon dioxide, interfered with. Okay, so you've obviously been working on a, a vaccine, and the vaccine um, is helping nearly 80% of uh, pediatric cases of RSV. So what is the vaccine? How does it work? And why are you administering the vaccine to the mother first? Right, so with this virus, just one part of the virus known as the F protein. It, this, is a part of the, this is a protein the virus uses to get this uh, sort of cells to fuse together when they've infected the lung. It's known as the F protein. So what this vaccine is, is that it's taken this F-protein and it's actually constructed it into a vaccine because we do know that if you develop antibody against the F-protein, the virus is unable to sort of undertake that activity in the human cell. So you're sort of trying to prevent the fusion of cells from taking place. Uh, in the presence of what you refer to as antibody, which is induced by the vaccine that's circulating, would sort of bind to the virus. So the vaccine itself is a protein-based vaccine. It doesn't use messenger RNA technology like some of the COVID vaccines. Mm. It's purely a protein-based vaccine, and protein-based vaccines is, makes up the majority of vaccines that children are exposed to uh, during their first few years of life. So this protein-based vaccine is given to the mother. Now, the reason we give it to the mother and not the baby is that 50% of the children that die of RSV and mm. 50% of the children that end up in hospital with RSV mm. are children under six months of age, usually around about three to four months of age. Mm. Now, to be able to protect the baby directly from vaccination, you would probably need to give two or three doses of vaccine in the first three months. So your protection will only start materializing after the age when the child has been most susceptible to developing disease. So instead, what we're doing is we're using a strategy that we've used for other uh, pathogens as well, where we vaccinate the mother during the second trimester or early third trimester between, say, 24 and 34 weeks of gestational age. We vaccinate the mother. We produce this antibody in the mother. And that antibody then crosses over across the placenta into the baby. So when the baby is born, the baby is equipped now to be able to deal with the infection when they're exposed to the virus. Mm -hmm. So because there's maternal antibodies circulating in the baby, as soon as the child is infected, uh, then that maternal antibody kicks in 
and prevents that infection progressing to severe disease. And our main mm-hmm. focus here is not to prevent the baby from being infected, but rather to reduce the chances mm-hmm. of that infection progressing to severe disease, ending up with a baby being hospitalized or dying of RSV. Mm-hmm. Do you know, uh, Prof, in a matter of six weeks, this is the second conversation we're having about respiratory problems affecting children, breathing problems affecting uh, babies. We had Dr. Felicia who was here, um, the first black ENT surgeon in South Africa, and um, she's just come back from New Zealand where she did her uh, her residency and fellowship. And she was talking to us about a procedure called um, inserting a tracheotomy. I think I'm saying it incorrectly. But in any case, it's it's just coming to my mind that little babies for whatever reason, seem to be having breathing problems. And I'm wondering if this is a global phenomenon or a South African phenomenon, and why is that? Yeah, so the two age groups when you're most susceptible to developing uh, respiratory illnesses are when you're less than 12 months of age and then in the elderly, people above the age of 55 and 70. And the reason for that is about the immune system. On the one hand, uh, the immune system is immature, in the very young, and on the other end, in the elderly, uh, it's what we refer to as immunosenescence, where there's sort of a loss of the ability to mount good immune responses. Now, in addition to affecting the lung, uh, many of these viruses can also affect the upper airway. Uh, so at a level of uh, just above the level of your vocal cord, as an example, or just below the vocal cord. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes can cause an obstruction in that upper airway. So in those instances, to assist the baby, what you would need to do is do a tracheostomy, where you put, we sort of bypass that obstruction so that we can get the air to flow into the lungs. And then or there's other reasons why there might be obstruction in the upper airways other than just from infection where you could use this. But I think the important message is that the reason children under the age of 12 months, and particularly the younger, the more susceptible, are the ones that are most susceptible uh, most at risk of developing respiratory illness, both in upper airways as well as in the lower airways in the lung. So the clinical trials that you have worked on um, as you administer vaccine to the pregnant mothers, just tell us about the methodology and how successful they've been. So what we do is we get volunteers uh, of pregnant women uh, and then we uh, sort of explain to them what the study is all about and if they're agreeable to participate in the studies, then they would be randomized. They would be allocated to one of two groups, which neither the investigators nor the mother would know which group they've been allocated to. The one group will receive the vaccine, and the other group will receive a placebo, an inert substance which wouldn't do them any harm. And then what we do is that we follow up those mothers to ensure that the, pregnant, the vaccine hasn't interfered with the pregnancy, uh, but more imp- and then we also look at uh, what the impact of the vaccine has been on the well-being of the child. So when these children are born, we continue following them up. And on a weekly basis, we would give them a call as an example. And if they do have respiratory symptoms, we would call them in to investigate for infection. So what ends up happening is that at the end of the day, we've got babies that are born to mothers that have been vaccinated and those that are born to mothers that haven't been vaccinated. Mm. Over time, we, are, we have a similar sort of approach to both sets because we don't know, due to the conduct of the study, whether the mother of the child had been vaccinated or not. So we're not biased in any way, but we investigate those children for infections when they have symptoms. 
when they have a cough, when they have fast breathing, as an example. And then right at the end of the study, once we've got enough cases of RSV in that population, we then compare what is the difference in the attack rate between of, for RSV, lower respiratory illness in babies that were born to mothers who received the vaccine, compared to those babies that were born to mothers that didn't receive the vaccine. And that difference between the two in the attack rate tells us what the efficacy of the vaccine is. So that is what is the risk reduction or what is the difference or what is the protection that the vaccine has conferred to the babies that were born to mothers that received the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So what we showed in the study is that babies that were born to mothers that received the RSV vaccine, they were just over 80% less likely to end up in hospital mm -hmm. for RSV uh, lower respiratory illness compared to those babies whose mothers had received the placebo. So when we're measuring success, you know, in terms of how well the vaccine works, are we measuring hospitalization rates or we're looking at just a complete elimination of the problem? No, we're not looking at an elimination of the problem. And just like we saw for COVID and all other respiratory pathogens, yeah. to eliminate the respiratory pathogen is almost impossible. Right. Uh, but what we're trying to do is what we're looking at is whether we can prevent what matters most. And that is uh, severe illness. So to us, it's much less of a concern if a child develops the sniffles when they're infected with RSV. But it's a much greater concern if the child needs to end up in hospital or needs to end up in an ICU on a ventilator or might even die mm. uh, because mm. of the RSV. So our focus is to see whether these vaccines protect children against what matters most, and that is hospitalization and death. If the vaccine does have an impact, on milder forms of illness, that's a welcome bonus. Uh, but that's not the reason we vaccinate. We usually vaccinate primarily to protect children against, as well as adults, against severe disease and death. Mm. Is there a time stamp on the vaccine? You, you know, it works only for three months, for six months, or it's forever? Yeah, so this antibody that transfers over to the baby, it sort of does wane over time. Uh, and what we see with this particular vaccine is that we predict that the vaccine will probably provide protection to the baby for about uh, six months. Uh, because after mm -hmm. six months, the child would have lost its maternal antibody. But during that six-month period, the child will likely be exposed to RSV if it is during the RSV season. Right. And then they will start mounting their own antibodies. Right. But together with this, there is another program where we're still looking at other vaccines that can then be given to children in the first six months of life, which will sort of help them right. into the next six or 12 months of life. So this is just one part of a strategy against RSV where we right. now first targeting pregnant women, but then we would look at right. other interventions as well. In terms of antenatal um, therapies and, 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 and assistance, is it happening that pregnant mothers, upon hearing that they're pregnant, get told or get advised, you need to immunize against RSV? Or is this a movement that needs to begin in South Africa? Uh, so it's certainly a movement that needs to begin. So right now, the RSV vaccine is not yet licensed in South Africa. Mm -hmm. We're hoping that it will be licensed, possibly in, uh, in, in 2024, and okay. hopefully it will be ready for the 2025 season. Okay. But in the meantime, the two vaccines that are recommended for use in pregnant women in South Africa, in fact, the one vaccine almost every pregnant woman receives it without probably necessarily knowing it, and that is a vaccine against tetanus, yes. which was a life-threatening disease in the past. But because almost every mother gets vaccinated, we no longer see tetanus cases in South Africa. And that was a, 
really devastating uh, illness uh, that used to occur in the first few days of life. But by vaccinating the mothers, that antibody that's transferred to the baby now protects those babies against tetanus. Mm. Then another vaccine that's recommended for pregnant women in South Africa is influenza, in fact, seasonal influenza vaccine. And with that vaccine, what we showed is that when mothers receive the seasonal influenza vaccine, mm. their babies are 40% less likely to end up in hospital for a pneumonia. Uh, so tremendous value in addition to protecting the mother right. uh, against influenza illness during the pregnancy, in addition to reducing a risk of having a preterm birth or a stillbirth, yeah. it also confers, confers protection to their babies in the first three to six right. months of life. Okay, thank you so much for your time. We're going to leave it there with Professor Shabir Mardi. Stephen in Pretoria West, you just wanted to say something? Yes, uh, uh, I just wanted to I'm aware that we're talking about children, but I just want to ask a general question which affects everybody. That uh, breathing with your hip is also part of releasing the carbon monoxide. Breathing with, with what? I didn't get that. Breathing with your hip. With your hips? Yeah, I'm saying, I was just putting it mild. Breathing with your hip is actually too fast. Is it also part of farting? <laughs> is, is it also part of actually releasing the carbon monoxide? Okay, I'm sure it is. <laughs> You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.